You can go and have a seat. Well, as Eli prayed, we are moving into the book of Revelation, which just happens to be perhaps the most provocative book in all of the New Testament. On the one hand, we're drawn to it with its vivid pictures of horses and dragons and beasts and otherworldly scenes that at once captures our imagination and stimulates our thoughts. But on the other hand, we tend to find this book overwhelming and really challenging to understand. And while it at first grabs our attention, it can become so overwhelming that we become discouraged, that we'll never figure it out. As a result, people tend to do two things with the book of Revelation. One, they become overly obsessed with it, scouring news sources day after day to find some fulfillment of the pages in it and putting names and dates and all of these things to this passage, living in this anxiousness of the moment and still others who respond to this book and say, well, it's impossible to figure it out, so therefore I'm just going to ignore it. I'll let the people with you know, letters behind their names figure this out. But neither of those approaches, I think, are the best way to come to this book. Today, as we begin this study, I hope to remedy these two problems, those that feel as though they need to attach every area of current day matters to the significance of this particular thing to relieve them of the pressure of figuring it out at that level of detail, but also to encourage those who have maybe neglected this book for most of their lives and saying that God gave it to you for you to understand and for you to know and for your blessing. So as we start on the study, I thought it'd be appropriate. Why do we have Revelation? Why this book? We've got 66 of them. Why this one in our Bible, in our holy canon? Let me give you two really big reasons why we have Revelation. The first is to reveal more of Jesus to us. If you haven't already opened your Bible to Revelation, go ahead and do so. I'm going to let it, you're going to sit it on your lap. We're doing a lot of introduction today, but we're going to be interacting with the first eight verses a little bit. But I want you to just look at the very, very first phrase of this book. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, some people ask the question, does this mean that Jesus plans to reveal something to us? And the answer is yes. And others ask, does this mean that more of Jesus will be revealed to us? And the answer is yes. That this book is all about Jesus and what God the Father plans to do through him in this world. Now, in this book, and you probably notice if we, I'll scoot back just so that you can see it here. The, the artwork for this is you have these two images here, the lamb and the lion. And really, as we embark on this journey to understand and know Jesus more, we, we need to understand the fact that Revelation gives us a glorious picture of him that's necessary for us to understand him fully as we come to the New Testament. For most of the Gospels, 
and even the majority of the emphasis of the epistles, he is the lamb that was slain. And we desperately need that picture of Jesus. We need this picture of the second member of the Holy Trinity being willing to come as a servant, to humble himself and become obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. We need to remember that he describes himself as gentle and lowly, inviting all to come and take his yoke upon them because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And therefore, we are so grateful for the picture of the lamb that was slain and all that it teaches us about Jesus. But this book in particular, while oftentimes reminding us of the lamb that is slain, is going to put the spotlight on the lion of Judah. That this Jesus is also the conquering lion that his second coming is going to be vastly different than his first. That in his first, in his humility, there was a barn out in the middle of a small town. The world had no idea. Oh, it will be vastly different when he comes a second time and all the eyes of this world will see him. And therefore, as we come to this book, it rounds out our perspective of our Jesus that we rejoice that he's the lamb that is slain and all of us who have had our sins forgiven rejoice in that. But may we never forget that he's also the conquering lion. The king of all. And so as we go through this book, it will fill in, it will fully form our idea and our picture of this glorious savior of ours who is both the lion and the lamb. But secondly, this book is also going to reveal more of God's story. More of God's story. The first book of the Bible is all about beginnings, thus its name, Genesis. A story is forged out from the early chapters of our holy scriptures of a world that God intended where he would be central to all things and all would find their life and their joy and their existence in him. And a very good creation where together incredible things would be accomplished for his glory and for his honor. And yet you know how the story goes. Our first parents rebelled, decided that they didn't want God to be at the center of everything, that they were just fine to determine good and evil on their own. And so the curse came in to this world. And sin and death. And we begin as any good story at the very beginning part saying, how is this all going to be fixed? How will this be remedied? And so the next 64 books of the Bible are all about God's salvation, how he would raise up a special people for himself, the nation of Israel, 
who were intended to be a light to the nations and a blessing to the world. But instead of that, they became just like all the other nations. So God would work through that nation to bring the Messiah, Jesus, who would ultimately deal with the problem of sin and death in the world, providing forgiveness for our sins at the cross of Calvary and dealing the blow to death at his empty tomb. And the story continues as Jesus ascends into heaven and he leaves you and I with an incredible task. It's almost mind-blowing to think about the fact that he left us to share the good news of the king to the entire world. That's what he left us to do, to go and to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And so it is, the middle of our scripture fills in these important parts of the story, but then we come to this book, Revelation, and it's how the story ends. And every good story has an ending. I find it shocking that so many Christians ignore or fail to understand this final book. It would be like reading Moby Dick or Middle March and putting 800, 900, 10, 1,000 pages into the story and saying, you know what, I don't really want to read the last chapter. It seems inconceivable to us. And yet far too often as Christians, we're settled to say, well, I, I don't know about the last chapter. Don't know what's really going on there. I'm so grateful that God gives us this final chapter. And it's a glorious vision of how things conclude and how all is made new. And as Elijah prayed for us this morning, he gives us this not just simply so that we could be in the know, like we're some sort of secret club that says this is how it's all going to end. He gives us this so that it might impact the way that you live right now. that it might change the way you view yourself in the story because you know what's coming. Now, let's be honest as we come to this book that there are some real challenges when it comes to understanding this book. I don't think I need to convince you of that. If you've ever read it, you know that, right? Have you ever met anybody who read all the chapters of Revelation and the first time said, I got it. That was easy. Now, we all know this. If you've interacted with it at all, you know that there are challenges with this book. Probably the biggest challenge is all the symbols that are in this book, the symbolism that's present here. And continue on reading uh, after that first phrase in Revelation 1.1. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Just stop there for a second. That little verb, made it known, is an interesting one. It's an unusual word that's used here. It could also be translated here, signifies. Uh, it lets us know from the very beginning that we're going to be seeing things, we're going to be taught here with some symbols. 
with a different way than the way the Apostle Paul just kind of didactically gives us point after point, logic and deduction. Things are going to be made known to you, revealed, as it were, signified. And of course, that is an apt description because if you've read through this book, especially by the time you get to chapter four and on, there are all sorts of symbols. We see this when it comes to numbers. Uh, In this book, the number seven is going to be very important. If you've ever read this and you didn't pick up the fact that sevens are all over the place, you need to reread it. There are seven churches and seven lampstands and seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls and seven blessings. Right? Like, that's not coincidental. The author is obviously trying to make a point with the number seven, which has this idea of fullness or completeness or perfection. It's only as we understand that number that we begin to understand the importance of six, which is a really sad number in this book as it falls short of God's perfection and completeness. We'll see the number 12 play out a lot in this book, whether it be the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 apostles, or as it starts to get multiplied, the 24 elders or the 144,000 witnesses or the 12,000 stadia. There's going to be a lot of numbers that have some significance to them. There's going to be a lot of Old Testament characters or places that are going to rear their head again, and you're going to scratch your head and say, why is Jezebel here? That was a long time ago. Or why are we talking about Babylon again? That was a city a long time ago. But they're there, and they're pointing to deeper truths as we go back and understand what these symbols are pointing to. We're going to see all sorts of strange creatures a red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, locusts with stingers like scorpions. So the question is, when we come to these things, the question is, how literal are we going to take all of these symbols? And this is the question that must face every Christian interpreter as they come to the book of Revelation. The reason why I say the question faces everyone is because I have not run into one person in all of my ministry or one resource that I've read that takes every single thing in this just literally. I have not run across someone who thinks that there is a literal woman riding on a dragon across the skies. So we all live and understand in a genre, okay, there's some symbolism that's going on here, but how do I interpret these? And there's a wide variety of ways that people do that. All the way on one side of the spectrum, there are those that say the symbol is the only thing that matters. There's nothing real behind it. Don't concern yourself with anything other than just the message of the symbol, Right? And that will play out in a lot of different areas. You know, it it doesn't mean that, you know, any of these things are real or things behind it. It's just the symbol that God's trying to get. But then on the other side, you have those that perhaps maybe go all the way to the same of saying, okay, well, I guess if it says that it's a locust that looks like a horse that has a serpent's or a, a scorpion's tail, then that's what I should be looking for. 
And most will be looking at it and say, well, I'm not sure if that's exactly what you should be looking for. And therefore, the job of the interpreter is to try to figure out, okay, how do we deal with these symbols? Let me give you a little heads up on what our default will be as we start to deal with the symbolic that's here in Revelation. We want to allow the symbolic to speak the message that it wants to speak. But we will also then allow the symbolic to represent things behind it that are real peoples and real places. You can have both. Let me give you an example of that. We are going to be introduced at the very beginning in Revelation to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Now, I don't think it was an accident that he wrote to seven churches. There was a whole lot of other churches right on the same road, but he wrote to seven churches. As I said before, the number seven has this idea of fullness or completeness or perfection. If we allow the symbol to speak for what the author is trying to communicate, it, it probably should alert us to the fact that even though there are seven churches that are mentioned, these seven churches are probably representative of the fullness of the church. That the things that are happening in Ephesus or Pergamum or Sardis, they're things that continue to happen in the church at large all over the place. And we should be thinking bigger than just, well, look at those churches all those thousands of years ago. They were really off base. Right? The seven lets us know, okay, we should be thinking in a bigger picture that these are the problems that face the church universally, not just seven churches all those years ago. But that doesn't mean that there weren't literally seven churches in Asia Minor in the early 90s, right? And we need to understand those churches and the problems that they were facing in real time and real history. Therefore, our default will be, let's give the symbolic the weight of interpretation that it needs, but let's not go all the way to the thing of saying, okay, well, all that matters is the symbolic. Now, when we come across these symbols, there's going to be some rubrics of how we're going to try to understand them, and I hope to model this for you as we go through this. Sometimes we're going to have the symbolic happen, and th these are glorious moments. I love them. Jesus or an angel is going to tell us what they mean. Don't you wish if any of you, I mean, like I said, I, I know that God knows far better than Steve Jackson, but I would have loved for every single chapter to have at the end, now this is what that represents and this represents. And this. Like, I would love that. That would be awesome. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen very frequently in Revelation. It does happen, and when it does happen, you're like, yes, thank you, Jesus, for telling me, Right? Those will rejoice in, those are the easier ones. When Jesus says, now I want to tell you what the lampstands are. Like, great. As I said, it's not always going to be that easy. So when we have these symbols that are used and it's not given specific definition by Jesus or one of the other angelic realm around, what we're going to do is we're going to try to rely on how these symbols are used throughout the rest of Scripture how these symbols are used throughout the rest of Scripture. I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but Revelation has more allusions to the Old Testament than all the other books of the New Testament combined. Combined. Okay? So 
When John wrote this, he is saturated with the Old Testament scriptures and he's pulling out allusions and ideas and thoughts that have already been thought and communicated previously by prophets of old. But if we're not aware of that, then we can oftentimes skew off into all sorts of fanciful thoughts rather than what was really in John's mind when he used this picture or this number. There are 278 verses in Revelation that refer to or allude to Old Testament passages. There's only 404 verses in the entire book. Therefore, we want to rely on the past usages from Scripture to help give us greater idea of what John is pointing to in these pictures. So this is going to be a big challenge for us. We're going to work through it together. I will let you know at the beginning, we're not all going to agree. And here's the beautiful thing. We can still love one another, right? We can come across a section and not agree on it. And both of us can, in humility before God, say, you know what? I'm just trying to be faithful to what God's word has to say. And if that's where we land, then we will rejoice even if we don't agree on every single thing along the way. But there's another major challenge, and it's the interpretive views that come with this. And what I mean by that is that everyone comes to this book with a presupposition of what this book is about. And it will become the lens by which they view the book. There have been four main ways throughout church history that people have viewed this book. I want to share them with you so that you can at least understand, especially if you're talking with other people, other Christians, you're probably going to find out very quickly that they all don't see the book of Revelation like you do. The first view is referred to as the preterist view. Those that are preterists view Revelation not as future predictive prophecy, but as historical record of events in the first century A.D., So a complete preterist believes that everything in Revelation has already been fulfilled in the early church. Okay, so as they come to this book, they're not looking ahead. They're, in their minds, studying history. Within this category, you'll find people who are what they will self-identify as partial preterists. And that means they view the vast majority of what takes place here in Revelation as happening in the first century. AD, but maybe just a couple of elements, maybe like the last chapter or two dealing with end times events. This is one way in which people have interpreted or viewed the book of Revelation. Another one is the historicist view. This view interprets Revelation as a detailed roadmap of history from the early church until Jesus' second coming. Uh, They view each and every subsequent scene as new developments and new stages within the life of the church. And they see the church over time growing further and further apostate until Jesus finally returns and makes things right. This was by far the most popular view in the 17th and 18th century during the time of some of the writers that you and I enjoy the most. The problem with this view is that if you read 10 different authors from this particular time period, they will identify everything with 10 different things, as you can imagine. But the idea is that it's covering the entire period from 
Jesus going up in heaven until he returns again, and we should be looking at all of those phases in the development of the church in the process. Number three is the idealist position. And this view sees Revelation as a depiction of a timeless struggle between good and evil that plays out in every age. They don't see Revelation as either historical or prophetic. They view it more as like a lesson in life kind of story, a story with a moral. And the moral is that God wins. And that in every generation over and over, there are uh, antagonists against God, and yet God always wins. And Revelation is the story of ultimately good winning over evil. And therefore, those in this category don't spend much time at all trying to identify times, people, places, chronology, timelines, any of those sort of things, because all that matters is the big message that God wins. Fourth, is the futurist position, and this sees Revelation as predictive prophecy about what is yet to come. This doesn't mean that the book of Revelation has no value for other generations other than those living in the final end times. We believe that the events of the future are meant to generate faithful living here and now in light of what is to come. But this position is that pretty much from Revelation 4 on, the events are things yet to come. Now, this will be the position that I'll be teaching Revelation from during our time. Um, while I want to be careful because there are people that I love and appreciate and that I will spend forever in heaven that hold every single one of those other positions. I think we all need to land on saying, okay, what is the most normal and natural reading of this text? For my preterist friends, I just find it really difficult seeing all the things from chapter 4 to 22 being completed already. Just find it difficult. Now that you can point to certain things in the destruction of the temple and other cataclysmic events, but nothing that seems to come to the scale of what I see here. Therefore, I can't fully appreciate or come to that particular position, but what I can appreciate about that position is that they're, what they're really trying to say is don't divorce this book from its original context, that it was written to seven churches in the 90s and that that time period mattered, and for that I can appreciate for our historicists, I understand the thought process and the desire to make this book applicable to every single generation of the church, and we would certainly agree with that. But trying to identify that specifically has been problematic for all believers throughout history, especially on the places where you live. Most of the writers that supported this only followed the church in the West. <laughs> there was a lot going on in the church other than just what happened during those particular things. But we can appreciate the heart of saying, let's make sure that this book is applicable to every single age of the church. Amen. And for the idealists, I can at least resonate with the fact that I don't want to get lost. What's the expression? I don't want to lose the forest for the trees. Is that how it goes? I always mess that one up. I appreciate that. Like you can get so bogged down in the minutia of this that you fail to get the major message of this book. And the idealists say, don't forget that. And that's a good thing even though I'm not convinced at all that there aren't real peoples and events and timelines that are represented here. What you'll find is this. If you go into deeper study today and you pick up a commentary that's been written in the last 15 years or you start reading in theological journals, most people are eclectic 
What I mean by that is they recognize strengths from each of the positions and start to apply them into their rubric. So as we come to it, we're going to be teaching this from a futurist perspective that once we get past the seven churches that resided in Asia Minor in the early 90s, that we're beginning to give a glimpse of the things that are yet to come. And yet I'll be trying to give you a healthy dose along the way of ways that people have wrestled with this text within the Christian faith. Now, if there's so much disagreement amongst believers, and this is, like I said, if we put names next to all these positions, there will be people that you love and trust next to all of these names. Then why bother trying to understand this book if it's so difficult even for smart people to figure out? Well, let's talk a little bit about the benefits of studying the book of Revelation. Okay, because what I'm asking you to do is we're about ready to embark on something that's going to be really, really hard. This is not an easy book to understand. So what are the benefits that we hope to see happen in our lives as we make this effort to understand this book of the Bible? The first is this. I hope that we will grow and become better worshipers. This book is about worship. I know because of all of the really big pictures and all the other different things that go there, we could get lost and we immediately want to get to, you know, charts and diagrams and all of these other different things. But at its heart, what it is all about is worshiping King Jesus. That's what it's all about. And we get a behind the scenes look into the glory of our triune God. We see this Jesus who was humble like a lamb that was slain that's now roaring like a lion and the words coming out of his mouth are like swords. And we marvel. And we see a father sitting upon his throne that is so glorious you can't even look upon it without him falling on your face. And we realize how amazing he is. And we encounter this Holy Spirit who will be described in all sorts of ways throughout this book because of his full and massive ministry across this globe. And we worship. Not only do we get a behind-the-scenes look at the Holy Trinity, but we get a behind-the-scenes peek into how God should be worshipped because we get a glimpse to see how they're doing it in heaven. Jesus once prayed, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in Revelation, we get a glimpse of what it looks like for the triune God to be worshipped the way he should be. And as we get that glimpse, it needs to impact the way that we worship him here and now. We will be struck as we see worship in this book how theocentric worship is. What I mean by that is God is at the center of it all. There is no doubt who's at the center of it all. And nobody is concerned about what they bring and their own feelings and their own everything else. They're all falling down before him and worship this glorious God. Far too often, we fall so short of that. So short of that. So my prayer is that 
we might learn to worship him more accurately in spirit and in truth as we study this book. Worship. Second, hope. The world is moving and changing at a pace it's never seen before. Things that even when I was a kid that would take months or years are oftentimes done in hours and minutes. And in a world like that where changes are happening, and as we watch them, most of them are not encouraging changes, it is easy for us to become anxious, to become fearful, and to become pessimistic. And yet, in the midst of what we're watching unfold before us, we have this book that tells us exactly how the story ends. That Jesus is coming to make things right. That one day Jesus will make all things new. That even though we look right now and it seems as though the evildoers are flourishing, that it seems as though the wicked are winning. Evil will not ultimately win. And the curse, which is the only thing you and I have ever known on this earth, is not final. And our goal is that we might begin to live in hope so that we might be those who not only persevere but conquer until the end. I don't see how in the world we could do that without this book of Revelation. And so I hope and pray that it will infuse a huge amount of hope into our lives. But this one might surprise you. Blessing. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1 of Revelation. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Now, I don't know about you, but I want God's blessing. So if the Bible says that there is a surefire way for blessing, then I want to listen. No other New Testament book gives us a statement like that. Blessed is the one who reads it. Blessed is the one who hears it. And blessed is the one who does it, who obeys it. So as we come to this study, which is going to be heavy lifting, harder work, may we never forget that it comes with a blessing. God promises to bless us as we hear and obey. Now, with that in mind, this morning, all I want to do is give you a brief introduction. We only have a few moments, but I want to give you a brief introduction so that we're ready to hit the ground running in this book. So hopefully you still have the scripture open in front of you. We're introduced to the very first word of this book is the word revelation. It's actually the word that we get the word apocalypse from. And with that first word, it lets us know that we need to understand a little bit of something about genre. Um, you guys understand genre, like a genre is, you know, like very different than if I, if I said, hey, here's a comic book um, and here is Shakespeare. Very different genres, right? Here is a newspaper, you know, and here is a commentary on Revelation. 
We have to understand what kind of genre we're looking at here. And this is an apocalyptic piece of scripture. Now, if you're not familiar with apocalyptic scripture, it's quite a fascinating genre. It was very popular when John was writing this book. We have a lot of other uh, apocryphal kind of writings during this particular time period. But they basically go like this, that there's a disclosure from, of heavenly secrets to a human by way of usually like an angelic mediator. And it usually involves a high level of symbolic language. The subject matter is usually the way that heaven uh, invades into the sinful world and ultimately conquers and defeats evil in the world. Um, and as such vivid and descriptive language, it, it is different than prophecy. Prophecy is to let you know, okay, this is what's going to happen in the future. Look for it. Apocalypse is, this is the way it all ends, and I'm going to describe it in such an amazing and startling fashion that hopefully it jolts you into how you're supposed to live today. Okay, so when people were writing apocryphy, they were supposed to say, okay, I, I want to change the way people are viewing the world and how they're acting today, and I'm going to bring the truth about what's coming to bear into their lives right now. And so John hopes to do that in our lives as we study this book that the images and things that we see will be so arresting to us that they might change the way that we see the world even now, that we might live differently. But while this is an apocalyptic book, it is also a book of prophecy. We see that even in verse three, in the blessing of anyone who reads of this prophecy. In chapter 22, verse seven, 10, 18, and 19, it'll repeat over and over again that this is a book of prophecy. This is one of the reasons why I also believe that the futurist position is the most natural way to understand this book, is it lets us know from the very beginning that this is prophetic looking forward. Uh, what's fascinating is that it's also an epistle. Uh, you'll notice that by the time you get to verse 4 when it says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. For those of you that have read any other New Testament letter, you're like, oh, I've heard that before. Right? So one of the things that makes this book unique is we have all of these genres kind of merging together in this one literary piece. Now, the process of how we have this book is a little bit different too than any of the other New Testament books. The process lets us know that God gave to Jesus, who revealed to John by way of an angel, whose responsibility it was to tell the seven churches, and since it's recorded for us in Scripture, it's now given to us too. Okay, and this is, like I said, the apocalyptic model here of heavenly, divine, revealed things that come to us as humans by way of an intermediator here. And sometimes it'll be Jesus himself, and sometimes it will be an angel that will speak to the author here, speak at here in just a second, and their job is to describe what they saw. Now, that's not an easy job. I don't envy John, the author here at all, for the job, the task that he had. He is going to be given vision after vision after vision, and he's going to have to describe it for you and me. In fact, it's such a part of this that I went through and highlighted in my Bible. Just highlight, go through every time where it keeps, it keeps saying, John says, then I saw, then I saw, then I saw, or and I beheld, and I beheld, and I beheld. It's just him seeing things that are revealed to him over and over and then him describing them for us. And like I said, I don't envy his task. Uh, 
If you got a glimpse into heaven and, you know, somebody said, well, what did it look like? Um, I doubt you could describe it literally either. You would rely upon every single, it's like, it's kind of, that you could as well. And this is the process of how this book got to us. John, look at it and then write it down. Look at it and then write it down. I mentioned before, the author here is John, and I believe that to be the apostle John who walked and talked with Jesus, wrote the fourth gospel, wrote the three epistles for second and third John. While John never refers to himself as an apostle in this book, I think we can be fairly confident that he is the author of this for a number of reasons. Number one, whoever this John was, he had to have enough spiritual clout that he could speak authoritatively into the lives of all of these churches, which speaks to apostle uh, authority here and the fact that he was so well-known and so well-received by all of these particular churches. Beyond that, the early church fathers were consistent and confident that the apostle John wrote this book. Justin Martyr, who lived in Ephesus about this time, attributes the book to the apostle John, as did Arrhenius, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, uh, Origen, the list goes on and on. It was pretty common knowledge, and there wasn't really any rival uh, opinion for this for many, many years afterwards. And therefore, this is the work of the apostle John, who, if you look ahead at verse 9, has been exiled to the island of Patmos because of his faithful testimony. Persecution is starting to ramp up, and John himself seems to be a recipient of some of that as he's been thrown into an island, which is the equivalent of being thrown into jail. That's what they used to do with people back in this particular time. Just go put them on an island somewhere and he'll be stuck. So this is our author here. The date of this is most likely the late 90s, and I don't mean by that the time of alternative bands and baggy t-shirts and Doc Martens and whatever you fill in for the 90s. I'm talking about the 90s AD here during the reign of Domitian, who was the emperor of the day. This timeline fits uh, most accurately what we see here for a couple of reasons. Number one, persecution just seems to be mounting at this particular time, and that fits better with this particular time period in Roman history. And also, there needed to be enough time, it appears, for the apathy that we're going to start to see setting into these churches to take place. Most of the churches that are written here were founded in like the 60s, and they were on fire as Paul ministered to them and built these churches. But you know what can happen in a couple of generations. And this allows for enough time for us to start to see these churches that were once strong and vibrant to be experiencing some of the apathy that we'll see here in these first couple of chapters. So we'll talk a little bit more about this as we go through, but that just kind of gets your bearings of where we're at in history and, and timing of this. Um, in verses seven through eight, we, we have the greeting uh, and we're alerted to the fact that the recipients are going to be these seven churches in Asia Minor. That's what we'll be talking about when we're together next, these specific seven churches along the specific path in Asia Minor. They're the ones who received this letter. They receive a Trinitarian greeting. And here we're first introduced to some of just the interpretive challenges of the way John describes things. Notice what he says uh, a little bit into verse four. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That seems to be a reference to the Father. Then scoot to verse 6. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, that's Jesus, 
no doubt about it at all. But then we're introduced to this in between. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. What? We got the Father, we got the Son, and we got the Spirit, but seven spirits? What in the world is going on here? Well, I do believe that this is a Trinitarian greeting and that the one being referred to here is the Holy Spirit. So let's see a little bit how these sort of things work together. Many believe that what John has in his mind as he refers to the seven spirit, remember seven being the number of completion, of perfection, is a passage of scripture in the Old Testament from Isaiah 11. Turn with me there if you would. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, we have this sevenfold description of the Spirit. Isaiah 2, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. Seven descriptions here of the Spirit. He's of the Lord, he's of the Spirit, he's of the, excuse me, of the wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of might, of knowledge, of fear of the Lord. This is probably the passage that John has in his mind as he starts to think about the completeness and the fullness of this ministry of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit does all of this and he is about to go forward from this throne room. He is God at work among this world. And so we start to get a glimpse of the way that oftentimes he will allude to passages in the Old Testament, no quotation, but just something going on here that helps us understand, wow, the full range of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is at work here in this scene and what is about ready to happen. We're introduced to the big themes of this book right here at the beginning, okay? To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha, the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Here are some of the big themes that are introduced right at the beginning that we will see throughout this book. First of all is that Jesus is exalted. While we look back to his work as the lamb that was slain, we're moving forward to the story of him who is to be glorified and have dominion forever and ever and ever. Why? Because he is the ruler of kings of the earth. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the exalted one. And this exalted one is coming with the clouds. And as I said before, his coming is going to be vastly different than the quiet Bethlehem scene. Every eye will see him. And as quiet of a night as it must have been in Bethlehem outside of the bleeding of the animals, in this time, the whole earth will wail on account of him. And so he is coming in power. And finally, we're reminded of the fact that this one is also in complete control. It's the final statement here. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. We talked about that passage even when we were talking about the essential attributes of God. It means that he has all the power. He's in complete control. He lets us know at the beginning, it's gonna look pretty chaotic on these pages. It's gonna look a mess out there. 
but I'm the Almighty. Got it all under control. And so we see these big themes presented to us even here at the beginning. How will the book work? The structure of it is probably given to us in verse 19. When Jesus is speaking to John, he says, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Um, This seems to be the structure of the book. Write down, first of all, what you have seen. And that's the vision we'll look at next week as he gets a glimpse into uh, the son of man walking among the lampstands. The things that are, that'll be chapters 2 through chapter 3, which is what's going on in John's contemporary time amongst the seven churches. And then finally, the things that are to take place after this, chapter 4 on. And once again, I think this points to a futurist position on this, that things that have not taken place yet. So this is where we're going in this study. Um, We're going to get to this in full in two weeks from today. Uh, Next week, I will be in lovely Cedarville, Ohio, dropping off my oldest daughter at college. Pray for me. I'll be crying a bucket of tears on the way home, I'm sure. Uh, but I will not be with you next week, and therefore we'll be back in together the following week. And between now and then, I want you to do two things. I'd like you to read the first three chapters of Revelation. You've got two weeks to do it. It's not a heavy load. Read the first three chapters of Revelation, okay? It's going to help you immensely. We're going to talk about the seven churches, but we're not going to go as in-depth in the seven churches as I normally would in a study like this because I already preached a series on the seven churches of Revelation uh, several years ago. We loaded up that sermon series to the website. If you go to the sermons, it's uh, right there at the top if you want to get caught up on that one. But I won't be going through it in the same level of depth that I did uh, when we did that series several years ago. So you can read the first three chapters, and if you are um, got some extra time, maybe as you're driving to and fro, you can listen to the first messages on those and be ready for us when we come together in two weeks to begin to talk about the seven churches. The second thing is, I want you to pray, and I want you to pray for three things. I want you to pray that God would give you a grander vision of himself so that you might worship him more, okay? There's nothing more that we need. There's nothing greater that we can ask and say, God, help me see you in all of your fullness. As Moses once asked, show me your glory. Second of all, pray that God would give you ears to hear and a heart to obey so that you might experience his blessing. Okay? This exercise should not be, the goal at the end shouldn't be just simply that you can write out a chart of end times events. The end ought to be that you're living in greater obedience to King Jesus and what he's called you to do and to be. And finally, pray that God would increase your hope so that you might remain faithful to the end. I think we all could use a little bit of a greater dose of hope right now. There's nothing better for us to do than ask him for it. So would you do those things for me? And I'll see you in a couple of weeks and we're gonna dive into this incredible final book of the Bible. Father, thank you for giving us this book. It would... we, We couldn't even imagine our lives without it. It's so vital and important for us. And I pray that you would help us as we go through it, Lord, to grow as better worshipers of you, that you would increase our hope, that we would experience the blessing that comes with hearing and obeying your word. And that, Lord, we would live lives that please you in the here and now as we look forward to what is to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.